Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Basha Cummings and you're listening to The Slow Newscast. More than a year ago now, reporter Louise Tickle joined our team at Tortoise to make a podcast series called Hidden Homicides. It was about the deaths of women who were in abusive relationships, and it was about how some murders are simply missed by the police, leaving these deaths uninvestigated and just uncounted. It was a story about data and numbers, but really it was about what we as a society care about and how the policing of domestic violence is, in many cases, really failing. Soon after we published, a new case came across Louise's desk, of a woman who had apparently fallen from a balcony in suspicious circumstances, but it was being called an accidental death. It set us off in a completely new direction to investigate whether women are being pushed from balconies in the perfect crime, where the forensic evidence is slim, the body so damaged it leaves no trace of any tussle that might have come before, and where there is no weapon. But when we looked a little closer, you can see a pattern emerge. You're listening to Fallen Women. Over to Louise and producer Gemma Newby. It starts with a woman lying on the ground. Perhaps breathing. Perhaps not. Now rewind. Just a few seconds. The woman is on the balcony of a tower block. Now go back. Just a tiny bit more. There's a man with her. Maybe there's shouting. Maybe not. The only thing we know for certain is that in a few minutes, one of them will be dead. And pretty quickly, you find yourself with three options. Did she jump? Did she fall? Or was she pushed? The language was appalling. It was getting heated, very, very heated. I thought, this is bad. That's the puzzle I'm investigating in this week's slow newscast. And she was coming down head first and... It was a matter of seconds from the drop of the balcony to there. And it's not one puzzle, it's dozens. 27 seriously injured or dead women. 23 men present in the moments before they fell. The screaming on the way down was just never forget it as long as I live, I don't think. And just a single conviction for murder. That was a mother with three kids. I'm Louise Tickle from Tortoise. This is Fallen Women. So, first interview from the suspect at 15.54 on the day that Bianca fell. There's a break and it picks up again at 17.26. Then there's a second interview by him on the 23rd of the 8th, which is... A week after she dies, a good week after she dies. In January 2021, Tortoise published a series called Hidden Homicides, where we uncovered how police were failing to investigate the deaths of women in abusive relationships. Missing the fact that there were reasonable grounds to suspect these women had been killed by men. Then, earlier this year, I reported on how the former MP, Andrew Griffiths, had used the family courts to cover up how he had coercively controlled and raped his wife, the MP, Kate Griffiths. And I found myself, through these stories and others, telling the same story over and over again. A story about institutional failure to protect women from misogyny, domestic abuse and sexual violence. 
And so perhaps it's no surprise that in August last year, I got an email from the MP Jess Phillips, who every International Women's Day reads out in Parliament the names of every woman killed by a man in the previous year. Jess was asking if I would meet someone who had a particular case she thought needed investigating. Giselle Feeney's sister had fallen 11 storeys from a Birmingham tower block in 2018. But Giselle had told Jess that she thought her sister might have been pushed to her death by her boyfriend. And this thought haunted her so much that she'd started scouring the internet for reports of other falling women. And then we started investigating at Tortoise, and we couldn't stop finding them either. To give you a sense of what we were seeing, last November alone, two women fell to their deaths. Sophie Lee from Southend was 22 and had just got engaged. And the other woman? There was no name. Merely the detail that she had fallen to her death from a tower block in Islington, London. And if you look closely, as we did, you begin to see a problem. Multiple deaths that might actually be homicides, hiding in plain sight. 27 women falling. Often young, vulnerable women falling off 6th and 7th and 14th floor balconies, falling out of windows, falling off the edges of multi-storey car parks. And there, in most of the cases, a man standing in the shadow of her fall. 23 arrests, 5 convictions. Giselle's sister's name was Bianca, Bianca Thomas. Bianca was a little bit like me. Um, you know, she had this, like, really infectious laugh. This is Bianca's mum, Diane. She's a social worker. And she smiled all the time, and people would often say, you know, um, Bianca's your double. And I actually felt that as well, because um, personality-wise, we used to have the, like, long... Discussions, we used to go on long shopping trips, we used to enjoy each other's company, just relaxing, really. Diane told me how, when she was pregnant with Bianca, she miscarried her twin and it was a miracle Bianca survived. Unashamedly, she also told me Bianca was the favourite of her five children. Bianca came at a good time in my life and we just really enjoyed her company, really. Um, Bianca was shy, funny, caring... The kind of girl who always falls for the bad guy. You know the one, the girl who sees the good side in a person when no one else does, who wants to rescue them. She liked to look after people and she was trusting. Too trusting, her big sister Giselle says. If they had a sob story, she'd really buy into that. She really would, but one thing I will say... In this podcast, Giselle and her family are talking openly about Bianca's death for the first time. Tell me a few of your memories of your sister. Yeah, no, I have really good memories, actually. When my mum and uh, dad split up, we had to stay with him for a little while. So we were kind of like homemakers, to be honest with you. We were quite similar in that way. So we liked to cook, we liked to clean, we liked to look after people. Bianca was very much so like that. So she was a bit impulsive, um, whereas I'm quite organised, I'm quite straight-laced. So that's where we would clash. Um, but other than that, no, um, exactly the same personality as me. But we, we're a family where we have banter, you know, we would sit and talk and laugh and have jokes. Bianca was 25. She was mixed race and she loved makeup and fashion. When I met her younger sister, Shard, many of Shard's stories began with a memory of Bianca in her bedroom. Shard doing Bianca's hair or her eyebrows. Bianca was also a mum. She had three girls, the oldest of whom was 11 when Bianca died. And she was vulnerable. In her short life, she'd been in two seriously abusive relationships. Her children were looked after by Diane to protect them from the violence that would, on occasion, engulf Bianca. She wouldn't go into things. If she was feeling really down, she wouldn't share it with you until it would get to a crisis point. When you knew that there was stuff going on she would never, ever open up to you. And if you did, it was like it's almost like scratching the surface. On Sunday, the 5th of August, 2018, the day before she died, Bianca was spending the weekend at her family's home in Birmingham. Her two youngest daughters were away on a weekend trip to London. 
The eldest was in the house with Bianca, along with Bianca's dad, Darren, and her then 16-year-old sister, Chardonnay, who was sitting with us in a very hot and very tiny room in a serviced office building in Birmingham, along with her six-month-old baby, Cairo, who you can occasionally hear gurgling in the background while she painfully recalls that night. It was really light. I think it was like 11.45, the taxi carry. Did you get the impression she'd be back soon or do you think did you think she was going to be back the next morning? No, soon. Soon. She said she was coming back the same night. Were you surprised she was going up that late? Not really, but I was surprised that she was going there. Bianca wrapped up some leftover chicken and rice her dad had cooked for dinner, said goodbye to her daughter and younger sister Shard, and took a cab to Birmingham City Centre to visit her boyfriend, who lived on the eleventh floor of Cleveland Tower. Less than two hours later, Bianca was lying on a metal canopy at the bottom of the 31-storey tower block, her body broken beyond repair. I remember waking up and um, police were at the door. They said that she's in a bad way and they were like, you need to come to the hospital. Bianca is not good. She's damaged so bad that she had um, a white sheet over her body up into there, just her neck because obviously her body was, like, shattered. Despite intensive medical intervention, Bianca never regained consciousness. She died nine days later, unable to tell anyone what had happened in those final few seconds of her too short life. Growing up with my sister, she was scared of a lot of things, especially heights. She'd never put herself in a situation to do something like that herself. She'd never do that. Let's go back a little to a few minutes after one o'clock on the Monday morning and a phone call which we've voiced up from the 999 call log. Hello. Ambulance service. Uh, girls jump from the flat. Oh, right. OK. What, what's the address? Is the patient conscious and breathing? Um, uh, Cleveland. Sorry? Uh, Cleveland Tower. OK, so do you know which... Uh, how many floors? Eleven. Are you watching, are you? Is it male or female, do you know? It's a female. I'm too scared to look. No, don't. Don't worry. I'm sorry. She was in my flat. She was... Jumped from your flat? Yeah. Yeah, I've got a balcony. She was on the balcony. And what's the name of the lady who's jumped? Bianca. Bianca. Is she your girlfriend or a friend or...? She's my friend. Did you see her jump? No, no. Have you been out to the balcony yet to see what's happening? No, no. It didn't take any time to look over. He didn't look over after. No. The caller told the emergency operator that the woman must have jumped. One moment she was there, then she was gone. Fallen. But the man who watched her fall has a different version of events. All I could see at first was just the top part of the shoulder and somebody leaning like, leaning like that. The back just, of her shoulders? Yeah, it? the back of the shoulders. And then suddenly... It was as if somebody had got her ankles or a waist. She came over and with all the screaming and her hair, everything was just... It was just as she was coming down and she was coming head first. Do you know what I mean? For that few seconds, she come over, you could see it was head first. We're outside at the exact spot where Brian Suffolk was standing the night he saw Bianca fall. Brian's a retired nurse who started his working life as an orderly and then worked his way up through nursing in hospitals and then prisons. Brian tells me he knows pretty much everyone in Cleveland Tower, where he's lived for 46 of his 66 years. I absolutely love it. It's amazing. And entering his flat on the 12th floor, where I've now been twice, is a bit like walking into one of those curio shops tucked away on little side streets, the ones that sell exotic items from faraway shores, a mirrored head of a bodhisattva, an Indonesian puppet and a full-size suit of armour that on occasion Brian wears. What you've told me is that the towers have got a bit of a reputation. Yeah, it's, it, it, in the 80s it, would, it was full of... Um, of druggies, a lot of um, gay people lived here. 
which is no problem, no, none whatsoever. And then um, it was, the druggies started to take over really bad. So he got a bad reputation. Everybody, if you said you lived in Cleveland Tower, it was, you know, known. The druggy block, the age block, it, it got, but now it's it's been pulled up from Birmingham City Council, which has made a vast difference. And from this one-bedroom flat, with its small kitchen and bathroom tucked in on one side and vast living room with a window stretching right the way across it, Brian has a bird's-eye view over Birmingham. It's breathtakingly high. You can see the cranes and construction sites pushing the city upwards and the old and decrepit buildings that are being left behind. And you can see all the way out to a sweeping, curved line of hills beyond the edges of the city. And then... Down and straight ahead of me is the corner from which Brian tells me he heard the argument. Can I take you back to that night? Yeah. Just before 1am, Brian remembered he hadn't put his blue disabled badge on his car. If you don't put it in at 8 o'clock, you get a ticket for £60. He headed downstairs. It was August, wasn't it? Yeah, it was very, very clear. Do you know what I mean? It was one of them nights where the moon was just bright. And um, as soon as I came out the exit doors, I could hear rowing and I... It's nothing new. You can hear people sometimes having a row, but and um, I crossed over, sorted my car out, which was at like at the top of the hill where crossed over, and um, I looked up and I thought, oh, being a bit nosy, as <laughs> just one does. I, um, I stood there by my car messing about when there was nothing to matter that I didn't need to, but then I decided to I locked my car, walk down the hill a bit because I wanted to have a look up, and then I could see. Um, people on the balcony. How many people could you see? I've seen seen two, but it was more her, um, you know, backwards mainly. Occasionally she turned around a little bit, but not not much. It was more like from the back. And did you, could you hear what they were saying? Yeah, you could hear the language. You You couldn't hear what it was really about? um, No, not really, because it was just effing and being and you know, you've done this, but it weren't anything coming out Pacific, but it was getting heated, very, very heated. And I thought, you know, this is bad. And you could hear it because they were on the balcony. Yeah, yeah, I could hear it. So, uh, yeah, it's only the 11th floor and it, I could hear it quite... Um, the, so I moved down a little bit further so I could look up and I could see what was going on. And um kitchen light was on and that's that part of, of the flat, so... And then all of a sudden, it was as if um, she become tall and then came back. Her hair was just down and she was screaming, you know, everything at him, screaming everything at him. It was a matter of seconds from the drop of the balcony to there. The screaming on the way down was just, um, never forget it as long as I live, I don't think. Brian ran back to the tower block dragged a wheelie bin towards the canopy and used it to clamber up onto, edging his way over to where Bianca lay. By this time, people had started to come out and shouting what's going on. And um, I was shouting, just phone an ambulance, phone an ambulance, phone out everybody, phone, phone the police a lot. Are you all right? Yeah. Just going back to that moment when you were watching and you said she suddenly got taller and then she came over. Yeah. Did you see him at that? No, you couldn't see him, no. No, you couldn't see him. There was a side view. That was the back view and there was a side view there. That's where I think he disappeared. Into the kitchen? No, in in front of her. He was still on the balcony, obviously, when she came over. But he didn't take... This is always my own thoughts about it all. He didn't take any time to look over he never looked over he didn't look over after no he didn't look over after she 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 came over he didn't um the lights went off in the in the in the kitchen all the lights went off he never looked over and he never come down he never come down he didn't down no he didn't come down at all no bianca was rushed to birmingham's queen elizabeth hospital the police took a statement from brian and arrested her boyfriend on suspicion of attempted murder. Her family were told by doctors that, if it weren't for the canopy breaking her fall, she would have died instantly. 
This is a short description of what happened. Police were alerted to an incident at Cleveland Tower, Holloway Head, Birmingham, at 1.06 on Monday the 6th of August, and that was by the ambulance control. Initial inquiries suggested that... We got hold of the 999 calls, the witness statements from the boyfriend, from Brian and from Bianca's mum and dad, and Bianca's hospital reports for the inquest. In an interview, he denied any guilty knowledge, it says, and has been released on police bail. And we've spent hours going through it all, trying to piece together what happened. OK, so here we have Brian Suffolk's record of taped interview. And this is what we can establish about the night Bianca fell. Bianca arrived around midnight with food and a small bottle of vodka. She drank a few shots in the flat. Her family told me this was normal. She liked to drink. They ate the leftovers she'd brought... She then told her boyfriend she wanted to go home to be with her daughter and he told the police that he advised her, his words, not to, because she'd been drinking. Then, according to the boyfriend, at some point she went out from the living room to sit on a chair on the narrow balcony. It's normal for her. She always used to sit on the balcony. And sat there, wearing her coat, holding her handbag, whilst he pleaded and pleaded with her, he told the police, to come inside. But she wouldn't come in. Like, I'm begging her, begging her to come in, saying it over and over again. He denies over and over again that they argued that night. In fact, he denies ever arguing with Bianca. And those final moments? He says she was sitting on the chair on the balcony while he went inside to get a cigarette. After rolling the cigarette, he says, he sat down to watch a film while she stayed outside. And then he heard a bang and she was gone. With two diametrically opposing accounts from Brian Suffolk and Bianca's boyfriend, It seems that at some point between August when she fell and her inquest in December, the police discontinued their homicide investigation. And so Bianca's family had to wait for answers from the coroner. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Mrs Hunt and I'm the senior coroner for Birmingham and Solihull. And we're here this afternoon for me to resume an inquest touching on the death of Bianca Martina. An inquest is a fact-finding inquiry, and the law is governed by the Coroners and Justice Act 2009. There are four statutory questions to be answered at an inquest. Who the person was, where and when they died, but also, importantly, how they died. The coroner, voiced here by an actor, spends less than two hours going through all the statements from the night of Bianca's fall. She asks Brian questions about his police statement, and she questions whether it was really possible for him to see so clearly 11 floors up at 1am. And when I heard that in the audio from the inquest, I sent my producer Gemma a message. So... Listening to this evidence from the police officer at the inquest, they're they're showing a picture which was taken from the ground, um, I think, in December or at least, you know, winter, which obviously shows it's quite dark. And although the officer says, you know, remember it was August, she sort of seems to agree that, you know, visibility would have been pretty bad. Now, but I've just looked up um, the August 2018 weather in Birmingham and... Looking at what it was like uh, between midnight and six in the morning on Monday the 6th of August, uh, it was not far off a full moon um, and it was clear. So in terms of the light situation, plus Brian was saying that there was a light on, um, either on the balcony or in the kitchen, I'm not sure that it really stands up to say that it was so dark you couldn't possibly see um, who was on the balcony. Brian also told the coroner that he knew the exact flat Bianca fell from because when he first heard the argument, he'd counted 11 floors up and saw a balcony with plants on it, which Bianca's boyfriend confirmed. And are those your plants we can see in the photograph? Yeah. You've been in court and heard the previous witness, haven't you? And he says that there was an argument going on and he counted up and that was your flat, your balcony. What do you say to that? It's impossible. Why is it impossible? Because we weren't arguing. 
When she'd been to your flat before, had she ever sat on the balcony rail? No. No. I said at the beginning that no witness has to answer any question that may incriminate them. I'm going to ask you a question that could incriminate you. You don't have to answer it, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Were you on that balcony? Did you push Bianca off the balcony? No. This is where the evidence, and what level of rigour the evidence has, gets both interesting and tricky. The police knocked on doors on the 10th, 11th and 12th floors. Nobody else told them they had heard any argument. The forensic investigation of the scene found a partial footprint on the balcony chair they thought matched Bianca's shoe, although the police officer who recounted the forensic evidence at the inquest admitted they had no way of knowing when it had been made. Smeared fingerprints on the metal rail above the balcony barrier were said to be facing inwards, as if Bianca was sitting on the ledge, her back to the air, her hands gripping upwards on the rail. But the forensic investigator didn't attend the inquest and so couldn't be interrogated on the evidence. That was quite strange to me. Firstly, I've never heard of a fingerprint examiner drawing conclusions on how a person moved based on the fingerprints that they left. This is forensic criminologist Dr Claire Ferguson. Claire's another person who contacted me after hidden homicides and we stayed in touch. I spoke to her at length for this podcast and when we got hold of the audio of Bianca's inquest, we sent it to Claire to get her professional opinion. My understanding is that a person's fingers, hands, arms, shoulders, etc., are too dynamic to draw meaningful conclusions about this. And I think that this is exacerbated by not being able to date the fingerprints, so not knowing when they were made. And then, after less than two hours, the coroner concluded that, on the balance of probabilities, Bianca had fallen over the edge of her boyfriend's 11th floor balcony by accident. The likely cause of her fall was overbalancing while sitting on the balcony railings whilst intoxicated. And at the time of her death, she had a blood alcohol level of 222 milligrams per 100 mil, along with the presence of cocaine and MDMA. And all of that leads me to record a conclusion of accidental death. I would want to know how the examiner could tell that Bianca was actually sitting on the railing rather than standing with her hands in the same position and her elbows up. I think there could be a perfectly simple explanation, um, but calling a third party to testify to someone else's findings means that we can't ask the question now. When I read the coroner's verdict, I tried to imagine how it would be possible to accidentally fall from the 11th floor. So I asked Brian Suffolk to take me out to his friend's balcony on the 12th. It's pretty hard to see how you would accidentally fall off this. I'm just leaning against it and it comes up to, it comes up to my chest. It comes up to my chest level. Bloody hell, don't do that, Brian. Picture a concrete wall about five feet high. I'm five foot eight and the top of the wall is about chest height on me. On top of which is a metal safety railing running through the middle of a narrow concrete ledge. In the inquest, the police investigator said that Bianca must have climbed onto the chair she was sitting on to sit on that narrow ledge and then accidentally fallen. But it's difficult to imagine why, when she'd never done it before when she was afraid of heights, that she would do that. It's also hard to imagine how that's physically possible too. Well, actually, no, you couldn't sit on the top because your head, I don't think you could, because the top of the balcony is too low, I reckon. It just feels to me that if you'd come and you'd seen this balcony, it would be such a a difficult judgment to make that you would accidentally fall over it. So what we see in accidental deaths um, is that they're usually at a job site or a work site doing construction or something like that. 
Dr. Claire Ferguson specialises in equivocal death analysis. So how do we tell the difference between an accident or a suicide and a homicide? Most of my research surrounds looking at what offenders do to try to make deaths look like accidents or suicides or natural deaths. She's explaining to me what the research shows on accidental falls. They're usually from the sort of three to four metre mark in terms of height. And I think that's because that's when people are more likely to be a little bit fast and loose with safety. Claire co-wrote the only academic paper I've been able to find anywhere that has attempted to research into homicide convictions after death by falling. She found and analysed 12 cases over 32 years of homicide convictions in Australia, Canada and the US. 10 out of the 12 perpetrators were men. We were just trying to explore what happens in those cases where it is determined that a fatal fall was a homicide. What do those cases look like and how might we be able to extrapolate from those cases to better train people to deal with fall deaths um, or to, I guess, inform the investigation of other cases that might be homicides uh, where the death has resulted from a fatal fall. What made you particularly interested in falls, in deaths by falling that were in fact homicides? I think having done a few studies on homicides that are made to look like natural deaths or suicides or accidents, I started seeing a few interesting cases where there were fall deaths that looked like homicide or could have been homicide, but which were very, very complex. So that's what got me thinking that we probably need a little bit more information on those types of homicides, if that's what they are, or those types of I guess, complex death investigations. And why is it hard to determine whether a fall from height is in fact a homicide? Oh, it's so difficult because police often look for indicators or wait for indicators from medical professionals. And what we have in fall deaths, especially when if you're talking about extreme heights, is that the autopsy report says multiple injuries consistent with fall from height, which is 0% useful to investigators. So that in and of itself makes investigating these cases very difficult. You also don't necessarily have some of the same Um, indicators that you might have in other types of homicides. Like there's not necessarily going to be a bloodstain pattern analysis or something like that at a crime scene that you can point to and compare to various theories of the case or statements of potential people of interest. So fall deaths can be really difficult that way. The other thing is that I think a lot of offenders make the assumption that investigators will think no one would do this. No one would throw someone from a height. Many of the fools that had led to homicide convictions in Claire's research had something in common beyond the fact that they were pushed. They were largely outdoors on locations like clifftops. There were more of those because planning creates evidence. So there are actually easier to prosecute. A husband luring his wife on a weekend trip to a high-up location leaves traces. The deaths we've been looking at, less so. The ones that are spontaneous look like, I don't want to say regular because that's just a gross term, but they look like other domestic violence-related homicides. Um, They involve threats of separation or actual separation. They are very angry and the offender is trying to regain control and basically throws the person usually off of a balcony rather than 
a cliff or some like wilderness sort of location. The femicide census shows that in 2020, 70% of women killed by men in the UK were killed at home. There's usually some sort of argument that's going on. You often have witness statements saying, you know, yelling and screaming in the apartment or what have you. Um, And generally, the woman is attempting to or actually leaving in those moments or has threatened to leave in those moments. And that's the, the trigger for the homicide. The throwing the person from the balcony might be the first instance of known physical violence, but the relationships are abusive and controlling for a period of time leading up to that. And the separation is, I guess, the final point. But let's return to Bianca's story, because there is something we discovered while investigating her death that, according to her family, West Midlands police either didn't know or didn't bother pursuing. She kept saying that the rights to gather off, um, but for weeks before that, she kept saying she's going to break up because she doesn't know like. And how to go about it, because obviously he's, he wasn't being a very nice person to her and being a bit um, racist and not treating her nice. You can hear how nervous Shard is because she's not sure how to talk about her adored big sister without giving away private, intimate details. These sorts of interviews are always excruciating. Was she frightened of him? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Um, because he was like abusing her. Shard, who was 16 at the time of Bianca's death, was the last person, other than Bianca's boyfriend, to talk to Bianca. But the police didn't interview her. And if they would ask the right questions and and ask, the, ask us, oh, you were the last person who spoke to her, what happened? Um, what was going on months before? They would have knew all this. But they just didn't care. You asked the police directly? My family and I did. I think when one of the police officers came out to the house, I asked if I could speak and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll give you a chance to speak later, but they didn't... They never came back to you? No. What did she tell you about him? Um, that at the start, um, everything was all right, as normally it is. Um, but after, like, I think it was about like a month or two, um, she kept coming to me and saying, he's not, like, a very nice person. They're not getting along like how they was before. Um, she feels, like, pressure, um, stress, things like that, um, like, around him, and she doesn't feel really, like, safe. Did you feel worried for her? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think... Every time when, like, she went out, had anxiety, like, I was worried, like, I was texting her. Um, I would ask her, like, she come back, how long? Yeah. I'd come home and she'd have, like, marks and bruises. She always had bruises um, on her arms, her, her legs. Um, I don't think there was any on her face, but it was on her body mainly. But she showed them to you? Yeah. Or did you just see them? Yes, yeah, right. And there was something else, something shod didn't want to go into the first time we spoke. Something we saw on Bianca's pathology report and felt we needed to ask her about. It's a single line and it just says that her genitalia were swollen. Swollen. And there are potentially a number of reasons why that might have been, but one reason potentially could be that she'd been sexually assaulted. And I wondered if there was any history that you knew of, Shard, in her relationship with where she had alleged that he had sexually assaulted her? There were things that she was saying um, that she didn't want to do sexual things and she got forced and pressured. We've got Shard on speakerphone and she's just told us Bianca felt forced to do sexual things. And she told you that? Yeah, um, I was doing, I think she came upstairs and she was like, oh, um, can you do my like eyebrows and makeup? And I said, yeah, no problem. And then that's when she was, like, disclosing, like, information, like, about him being, like, being um, abusive and a bit volatile. 
and um, the sexual um, situation. I know this is really difficult, Shad, but if you feel able to answer this question, was he raping her? There was there was a mention of um, there was a mention of that one. Can you tell them exactly what her words were, T.A.? Say it. Sorry. I hate, I hate, like, I hate, like, obviously it's information that everyone needs to know, but I hate, like... Mum, mum, mum already knows anyway, and she said to say it. I think, I think she mentioned that he raped, raped her once. She was saying, like, she was in his bedroom, and they were just, like, chilling, whatever, just, like, sitting down with each other in the bedroom and um they were talking and then like obviously he was trying to like um like touch her and things but she didn't feel comfortable and she was like oh no and then she said she felt forced and pressured into obviously that what i just said that she mentioned that he raped raped her once she said that the dog was there and the dog was barking or something because they were arguing with each other and the dog she was barking in the living room. Was he being violent to her during the rape? She said that like he was he had a like he was holding her hand, like holding her arm, sorry, her arm. Um but I don't that's all she said and then she was like, Oh, um, I shouldn't even take this anyway, so that mm. and then she just changed the subject like really quick. We tried to get hold of Bianca's boyfriend to ask him about these allegations. We tried calling him, we sent three letters to his home address, but we've had no response. But there's little doubt he would deny all the allegations against him. Were you surprised that she was going out to see him that night, that late, taking food? Was that a normal thing? I just remember her kept kept going to the toilet, answering the phone that night, and then kept saying, can you come, can you come, can you come? I just had like the same things. Oh, it's too, it's a bit late, and I've got my daughter and things like. She was trying to put him off. Yeah, and she's like, I can bring my daughter, and I think she offered the eldest daughter to come because she was worried and scared. Do you think he had a hold over her? Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So if you are a police officer arriving at a scene where a woman is dead on the ground and a man is upstairs somewhere in a building. I'm back talking to Dr. Claire Ferguson. And you find out, for instance, from the family that that relationship is abusive, although you may have no records on your central computer system. What should you be doing at that point? Um, Starting a suspicious death investigation. 
We were clearly curious as to how thoroughly West Midlands police had investigated Bianca's death and the background to it. In a statement, they told us... We thoroughly investigated the circumstances around Bianca's death. The investigation was initially led by our homicide team and statements were taken from a number of witnesses. We recovered CCTV from the area and carried out a forensic examination of the scene and an arrest was made as part of the investigation but later released with no further action. There was no evidence of foul play and we passed our findings to the coroner who recorded a verdict of accidental death. So what are we left with? A young woman who told her sister she had been physically and sexually abused by her boyfriend. Who told her family she was trying to break off the relationship. A young woman who was, her sister told us, scared and who didn't want to go and see him that night. A woman who, just an hour after arriving at her boyfriend's flat, had fallen and was dying. To me, it seems so unlikely that she fell by accident, both from the research on accidents that show they happen at much lower heights and, frankly, from standing on an identical balcony and seeing how impossible it is to sit on the ledge without scrunching up to stop your head hitting the floor of the balcony above. There was no indication that Bianca was going to jump. And a witness with no skin in the game heard a ferocious argument right up until she fell. There is no official collated data on fallen women. No accumulation of evidence. No information on the circumstances surrounding the deaths or catastrophic injuries sustained. So, like Bianca's sister Giselle, we started searching online media for news stories of falling women so that we could develop a database. And a pattern began to emerge. This is Tortoise reporter Ellen Halliday. So I basically started with a very simple online search. I was looking for women, I was looking for if they'd fell, and I was looking to find out what the police had said about the nature of that fall. Mm -hmm. And so the result in this spreadsheet that we've got in front of us is a list of women who've died in in different ways. Some of them um, are clearly accidents. Some of them are tragically suicides. But there's a number of cases in there that the police then went on to deem um, suspicious. We found 51 cases of women who were seriously injured or killed as a result of falling from a height. 27 of the cases were deemed to be suspicious. A woman died in 17 of those falls and was seriously or critically injured in six others. In one case, she was otherwise injured, and we couldn't find information on the outcome in the other three cases. So we've got Georgina Drinkwater. She was a 30-year-old mother of two. Oh, and she was almost six months pregnant. Annabelle Lancaster, 22. She fell 90 foot from an eight-storey flat in North London. That was in 2019. She was with her boyfriend before 2014. Um, That was an open verdict. Her mum said she would never have climbed over the balcony she fell from. She was and here is a recent one, Donna Price. Um, she was 43 in 2021. Uh, she fell from a height and died. Two men arrested on suspicion of murder. They've been released on bail. One of the things that really stands out as I'm looking at the data is that a man was present in 23 of the 27 cases where a woman fell in circumstances deemed by the police to be suspicious. Out of the cases that you've looked at, where is it reported in the media coverage that there was an abusive relationship and what was going on at the time of that fall? So in eight cases that we looked at, there was known abuse. Um, And we know that because it was something that was reported at a trial or an inquest, often information fed by friends or family in the lead up to this incident that we have then recorded. And I've read articles where the journalist has gone round and got eyewitness evidence or has spoken to neighbours and they say there was an argument, I could hear it, or there was always an argument, it was always going on, that kind of thing. Yeah, so separately to those um, eight cases of abuse, there were other reports where eyewitnesses said, we heard arguments, we heard shouting, sometimes they could hear what the women were saying, sometimes it was more of a, a disturbance that they were aware of. So there are also four cases that we found where eyewitnesses said there had been a row. We also collected data on falling men from the same period. And there is a striking difference when you compare what happened to the men 
against what happened to the women. Many of these women are falling from tower blocks or blocks of flats in major British cities in London, Birmingham, Edinburgh, Glasgow. Men are also often falling from flats. So in some ways it's similar, but rather than them being at home, they are often uh, with friends or one man even fell from a pub window. They're in public places rather than in what should be you know, a safe home, a safe space. When you say they're in public places, do you mean they're sort of with other people at the time? There's a group of them, it's a party, that kind of thing. It's a party or it's a busy train station or their, their colleagues are there, whereas the women are falling from a private space where there's fewer witnesses. Out of the 38 falling men we found for the same time period, five of those falls were deemed to be suspicious. So in the cases of the men, it's more often been an obvious accident, out of nowhere, out of the blue. In the women's cases, there are records of arguments, there are records of abuse in the relationship, of patterns of violent behaviour by men towards the women involved. Of the 51 female fools, 27 were deemed suspicious. And out of those 27, arrests were made in 21 of the cases. Charges were brought in six and convictions secured in five. And of the 17 deaths, two convictions for manslaughter and one for murder. Bianca's boyfriend was released without charge. With only one eyewitness account of an escalating row heard by nobody else, a footprint and some smudged fingerprints, there wasn't enough evidence to do anything else. Would it have made a difference if West Midlands police had looked into the abuse allegations made by Bianca's family? In a death that shares so many features with Bianca's, the police did just that, and it still wasn't enough to get the boyfriend charged. So we have seen an investigative report produced by the police, which was uh, disclosed to the coroner, in which they had recommended to the Crown Prosecution Service that a charge be pursued of manslaughter. They had concluded, uh, again, that there was insufficient evidence uh, for a charge of murder, while that was a hypothesis that was um, that was open to them. Um, but they felt that there was sufficient evidence to suggest that, at the very least, his sort of violent and aggressive behaviour towards Jordan had caused her death. This is Kate Ellis, a solicitor from the Centre for Women's Justice. Kate represents women who have been directly affected by male violence, as well as relatives of women who've been killed, who are struggling to get the authorities to recognise the sometimes fatal consequences of domestic abuse. And this is how she came to be involved in the case of a falling woman. Jordan uh, fell from her fourth storey flat uh, after what can only be described as a uh, fierce argument, it seems, with her ex-partner. We know that that argument took place, um, firstly, because there was a text exchange between Jordan and her her partner earlier that evening, uh, in which she had um, pleaded with him uh, to be reasonable. She had uh, apologised for some uh, mistake that she wanted him to forgive her for. She had said that she was scared of him. Uh, and he had said that he was going to to come over. Numerous other residents or people who were in the flats that night gave evidence to the effect that they heard an argument taking place or they heard a combination of sort of shouting, you know, a woman sounding distressed, a, a male voice sounding angry. They heard um, the sounds of sort of something physical happening and then some of them then heard the sound of her crying for help uh, from the balcony. Uh, which must have been in the moments just before she fell. Jordan John-Baptiste fell from the fourth floor of an Enfield tower block in 2015. Like Bianca, she was young, just 22, mixed race and in an abusive relationship. We didn't have a direct account from Jordan uh, to say that she was assaulted by him previously, but Mm. there was a considerable volume of hearsay evidence from her friends who had been told by her or shown photographs by her indicating that she'd been assaulted and abused by him over a number of years. It's the sort of circumstantial hearsay evidence known as bad character evidence. Bad character evidence is evidence that the person 
has been involved in criminality other than that for which they're charged. So if, for example, it's said that the suspect was a domestic abuser of the victim and the text messages support that conclusion, that would be bad character evidence. So I'm just, the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is just to simply introduce yourself. So I'm Alex Balin. I'm a barrister, uh, a criminal barrister, and uh, I'm instructed in a wide variety of criminal cases. Um, one of the things that I'm sometimes instructed in is homicide in unusual circumstances. In a noisy room at Matrix Chambers overlooking Gray's Inn Road, Alex Balin QC is explaining to me what it takes for a judge to agree to admit bad character evidence of the sort we've been hearing in a criminal trial. When I started out, it was inconceivable that that sort of evidence would form part of the evidence in a homicide case. It just the law changed um, about 20 years ago to permit that sort of evidence to come in. Uh, and what you now need, in essence, is evidence that the bad character evidence shows a propensity to commit this type of crime. Now, now obviously, you can't work on a presumption of domestic violence in those sort of situations, but it may become clear fairly early on that there is that sort of relationship potentially and the police need to keep a very open mind and investigate that as thoroughly as possible and it's really then for the prosecutor to decide do I think this is a sort of bad character evidence which would actually go in at trial which is going to make a real difference but the real question in a homicide case is what is it probative of in this case? And that requires proof of an unlawful and dangerous act, typically an assault involving actual or the threat of violence, which legally caused death. What a prosecutor may do is say, look, there are certainly arguments that bad character evidence could go in here. There's certainly a legal basis for arguing at trial that this evidence should be admitted. But in making a charging decision, I may not be confident enough that it will be admitted at trial. And therefore, I will make a charging decision putting that sort of evidence to one side. But put that history of abuse to one side in a scenario where all the evidence you have is circumstantial. Bodies too shattered from the impact of a fall to show any evidence of force. A witness who heard an argument, but maybe through a wall and didn't see anyone being pushed. And a few inconsistencies in the suspect's account of what went on. And it's hard to imagine how you can get past that evidential threshold. What would it take? These are all kind of complex questions, of course they are. But it's it's why it's so important, I think, that cases involving fatality following a kind of complex pattern of domestic abuse are put to a jury to determine um, and that, that the police and prosecutors don't play judge, jury and executioner, you know, in the case and and, and decide cases before they've, they've um, been heard fully before a court. Kate Ellis represented Jordan's family after the Crown Prosecution Service ruled there wasn't enough evidence to put her boyfriend in front of a jury. Why did the CPS decline to prosecute the Crown Prosecution Service felt that um, it was a fundamental problem to the case that there was no eyewitness who actually saw Jordan fall or saw what the suspect was doing when Jordan fell. Um, so that was a really fundamental thing they came back to. They also relied on the fact that uh, Jordan had self-harmed. It wasn't disputed by by the family or by anyone that when she was a, a young teenager, there had been at least one occasion of self-harm. But the police saying that a period of self-harm several years previously mm. threw doubt on her mental state at this particular point. Yes. I think in addition, they took into account the fact that the suspect had himself brought up the fact of her self-harm and he had um given an account to the fact that this was you know this was symptomatic of her mental health generally that she'd always struggled with these feelings but of course that account could be said to be a self-serving account it rather assists the suspect's case that she had um that she had jumped deliberately or put herself uh, at risk 
The suggestion made, I think, in the final decision letter from the Crown Prosecution Service was that maybe this was a case where um, Jordan had kind of not known what she wanted, that she'd got up onto that balcony, um, you know, in a, in a state of great distress, perhaps hysterical and sort of threatening suicide and then and then had, had uh, fallen before she'd had a chance to think it through. Many of the women we found are young, vulnerable, have alcohol or drug problems and are in and out of abusive relationships. Bianca had been drinking. She must have drunkenly climbed up onto the balcony and then fallen. Jordan had self-harmed several years before she fell. She was clearly unhinged. That left the family feeling really insulted. They just felt like, well, that's not our daughter. That's not how our daughter would have behaved. She wasn't, you know, hysterical and hot-headed. If she went over that balcony, it would have been because she was trying to survive. Pushed to the edge, even if not over. I'm going to end this episode back where I started, with a puzzle. 27 suspicious falls. 17 dead women. A man almost always arrested at the scene. And then, almost always, released without charge. And really, we've only scratched the surface. Who knows how many more women are falling in situations like these? When we began this investigation, we asked 45 police forces across the United Kingdom if they could tell us how many women had fallen from height in suspicious circumstances, if there had been an arrest at the scene, was there a marker of domestic abuse, and had anyone been charged with or convicted of murder or manslaughter. And I suppose, after doing so many stories like this, I don't find it very surprising that none could, except one which was Leicestershire Police, which had been counting. They told us that between 2016 and 2021, three women died and 43 were seriously injured in falls. Nobody was charged with the death of a woman who had died falling from a height. Eight people were charged in relation to women being seriously injured. And what's most interesting is that of the 43 women who were seriously injured, 35 reports had a domestic abuse marker next to them. So either the police knew before, or now know, that these are domestically abusive relationships. So are all these women killing themselves immediately after rows with their abusive partners, or carelessly falling from great heights in the wake of an argument so ferocious the neighbours can hear? Or are we ignoring a dark figure of homicidal fools that are not recognised as such by police or that can never be brought to trial? No one seems to care. And this is the thing that I don't understand about all of my research. Nobody talks about this as an issue. Like we have kind of this notion that people that commit intimate partner femicide often use concealment of some type. Um, You know, they try to get rid of bodies and they try to make it look like suicide or accident or whatever. But there's no one actually doing the research and thinking about, well, how do we train the people that go to death investigations that don't immediately scream homicide and make the right choice? Because if they don't make the right choice, then the investigation is going to be very, very difficult to make up later. Having spent months investigating fallen women, what I see is a failure to really thoroughly investigate, a failure to count, and a failure to care about women who don't easily fit the definition of the perfect victim. Young mothers, pregnant women, women drunk or on drugs, trapped in abusive relationships, living in city tower blocks where seemingly accidents happen all too often. And so their deaths and their lives go unnoticed and ignored by the very institutions that exist to protect them. Teresa Parkin. Sasha Bishop. Unknown. Dora Matthews. 
Georgina Drinkwater, Jordan Jean Baptiste, Kirsty Maxwell, Bianca Thomas, Renata Ponkova, June Knight, Alem Shanami, Ella Halliday, Donna Price, Unknown, Fazia Javed, Sophie Lee, Unknown. Fallen Women was reported and produced by me, Louise Tickle, Gemma Newby, Ellen Halliday and Nimmo Omer, with sound design by Tom Kinsella. Our editor was Basha Cummings. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Slow Newscast. I'd love to invite you to join us, to join Tortoise and join our newsroom. You'll get our podcasts early and ad-free, and you'll be able to get involved in our journalism by joining our think-ins, our open news meetings, and all the rest. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50, that's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. Thank you, and I'll see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.